word of God has been read in our hearing, let us pray that God by his spirit will made effectual in our hearts. Heavenly Father, we do come this morning recognizing that if we would learn, it would be by your spirit. That if we would know anything, it would be according to your power. We understand this morning, Lord, that it is not about your servant, it is about your spirit. So we do ask that you would come by your spirit and empower us to hear. Empower us to see. Empower us to know, to learn, and to receive Jesus the Christ. Oh, Lord, we do desire this morning to know him. To know him in his glory, to know him in his suffering, to know him in his exaltation. Lord, we desire to know Jesus. Come now by your spirit and teach us, enlighten us, fill us that Jesus might be all and in all. This is our prayer this morning as we come to your word in the name of your, of your son and our savior, Jesus. Amen. Um, you know, when I was a little boy, um, from time to time, my father would make me promises. Now, my father died when I was <clears throat> but 10 years old, and so I don't have a lot of memories uh, of my father, but I remember that when my father would make promises and he would not keep those promises, he would say, son, promises were made to be broken. Really? Indeed, we are promise-breaking people. If you were to ask my children, if you were to ask my children this morning and ask them if daddy has kept all of his promises, I will tell you for sure that I never made a promise that I did not intend to keep. <laughs> and they know that. But indeed, we are promise-breaking people. We tend to break our promises. This is not something that we should look at lightly. This is not something that we should just gloss over, for the Bible frowns upon those who are promise breakers. The Bible reminds us that it is better for us not to vow than to vow and not pay. And yet and still we are promise breakers. And the reason that we are promise breakers is too often we get ourselves into making promises and rash vows that are unreasonable. We make promises that we don't have the ability and a lot of times even the will to keep. And this morning... Our text is a glaring and tragic example of such vows and oaths. Jephthah, as we have seen over the last couple of weeks, was a warrior judge of Israel. 
He was a mighty man of valor, the Bible says. He was a statesman. He was a leader of men. He was a faithful and successful soldier. He was a faithful negotiator. But for all that we know about Jephthah and for all that we have learned of Jephthah thus far, the thing that Jephthah is most known for in the scriptures and perhaps even in our own minds is for the making of what has become known as Jephthah's vow. Jephthah's vow the promise that he made to God that has echoed through the pages of redemptive history and it marks out one of the darkest and most tragic episodes in the history of Israel and particularly in the history of the judges. One commentator has said that Jephthah's vow is without parallel in the book of Judges, but also in the Bible itself. This is the passage we come to this morning. This idea of Jephthah's tragic vow. But before we get to the vow, the Bible sets up this vow by reminding us that God has called Jephthah, that God has raised Jephthah up, that God has appointed Jephthah for a time and a purpose. And we saw last week that that Jephthah had gone into negotiation with the Ammonites, and they were not interested in negotiating. They were not interested in truth. They were only interested in the lie. They were only interested in doing battle. And Jephthah, at the end of Uh, uh, chapter 11 there in verse 27 i do believe he says then let the judge the lord the judge judge between your people and mine this day in other words put them up we're gonna fight and as jephthah prepares to go into battle Here we come to our text this morning, and there's three movements here that inform us, that instruct us, that show us the nature of God, the foolishness of Jephthah, but also the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. The Bible begins here in our text In verse 29, with these words, these powerful words, where it says, the spirit of the Lord was upon Jephthah. The spirit of the Lord is upon Jephthah. This reminds us that no matter how dark the night, no matter how dreary, no matter how hopeless it seems in the nation of Israel, God has a purpose, God has a plan, and God is going to accomplish his will in and through his people. So he says, the Bible says, the spirit of the Lord came upon Jephthah. 
even in the midst of Israel's faithlessness, even in the midst of their rebellion, even in the midst of their idolatry, God is going to accomplish his purposes. Spirit of the Lord comes upon Jephthah. And this is not the first time that the Bible, even in Judges, reminds us that this is the purpose of God in sending his spirit into his man. We saw it with Athaniel in chapter 3. The spirit of the Lord was upon Athaniel. We saw it in chapter 6 with Gideon. The spirit of the Lord was upon Gideon for what purpose? To accomplish God's will, the deliverance of God's people. To set the man apart, to lead God's people in triumphing over their enemies. Ironically, this won't be the last time we see it, but we'll see it a couple of times even with Samson. The Spirit of God comes in equipping and empowering God's man for service. And whether it is Othniel, or whether it is Gideon, or whether it will be Samson. The point that the Bible wants us to understand that it is not about the person, but it is about the purpose. The issue here is not Jephthah. The issue here is God. So God comes, his spirit comes upon Jephthah for the point of not making much of Jephthah, but making much of God. God's going to get the victory. God is going to deliver his people. Yes, he's going to use Jephthah, but Jephthah is only going to be a means to God getting the glory. So that the people could understand, as God says in Zechariah, that is not by power, it's not by might, but it's by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. He has determined to use Jephthah for his purposes. And like with Athniel and Gideon, God's spirit is going to guarantee God's victory and therefore guarantee God's glory. And the spirit comes, the spirit comes, and it comes, and it gives Jephthah power. Power. There's three elements to this power that the Spirit gives to Jephthah on this occasion. And the first thing we see is that Jephthah, according to the Spirit, has persuasive power. For the Bible says that he goes all throughout the land, and he goes all throughout the land, presumably to recruit, presumably to persuade his brethren in the land. Now it is time to fight. Come and follow me. The Spirit of the Lord is upon Jephthah, and Jephthah is going out recruiting the army, leading his people into battle, and he goes and he tells all of his countrymen, God is with us. Let us go up against the Ammonites. And apparently he persuades them. The Spirit of the Lord is upon him, and that's what the Spirit of the Lord does. It grants persuasion. But not only is it a persuasive spirit, as my friend uh, down in Miami where I was last week was preaching, he reminded me that God's Spirit is a pugilistic spirit. It is a pugilistic spirit. In other words, it is a fighting spirit. 
It is not just a persuasive spirit, but it is a fighting spirit. For the Bible says here that Gideon, when he goes into battle and the spirit of the Lord is upon him, he strikes a great blow. He strikes a great blow against the Ammonites. The NASB says a very great slaughter. The NIV says he devastated 20 cities. It's according to the Spirit of God. Not only is he able to persuade his countrymen to come along with him, but now he is able to fight with power. He strikes a great blow against the 20 cities of the Ammonites. But not only is it persuasive and not only is the spirit of God pugilistic, but we see also that it is punitive. The power that is upon Gideon is the power of God, and it is a punitive power. For it punishes the Ammonites. The Bible says that they, they, they that the Ammonites were subdued, they were defeated, they were broken, they were humiliated, and like a dog with his tail between his legs, they scatter and they run. Why? Because the Spirit of the Lord was upon. Jephthah. This is the work of the Spirit, is it not? And this is this this idea of, of, of Jephthah's victory is not the victory of Jephthah as much as it is the victory of God by his spirit. For remember in verse 32, what is it said? Ultimately, it was the Lord who gave them into his hands. The Spirit of the Lord comes upon Jephthah, and then the Bible says that it is the Lord that gave the Ammonites into Jephthah's hand. Why? Because the Spirit of the Lord that comes upon the man or the woman is not about the man or the woman. It's about God. It's about making much of God. It's about glorifying God. It's about pointing people to God's majesty, to God's power, to God's might. And this is the work of the Spirit. This is always the work of the Spirit in God's people's lives. For even today, see, and we should understand that God's Spirit, even in our lives, is a persuasive Spirit. Do you understand that? Even today. It is a persuasive spirit, persuading, calling out men and women out of darkness and into the kingdom of light, persuading us of the goodness, of the beauty of Jesus Christ. Do you know Jesus this morning? Have you seen him? Do you adore him? Do you love him? That is not of your own doing, beloved. That is because the spirit of God has come upon you and opened your eyes and persuaded you of the beauty of Jesus. It's what he does. The Spirit of God comes upon a man or a woman. It is so that they might be persuaded of who Jesus is. 
There's not only a persuasive spirit even in our lives, even today, right now, it is a pugilistic spirit. For he fights for and he fights with us and he gives us victory over the world, the flesh, and the devil. If you have any victories this morning in your life, if you're conquering sin of any type, if you're rejoicing in the victory over the flesh, over the world, over the devil, at any moment of any day, it is not by your power, it is not by your might, but it is by the Spirit of the Lord. This is why John says in first, greater is he who is in me than he who is in the world. Why? Because it is by his spirit that I do battle with sin. He is still persuading. He is still fighting. But do you understand also that even now he continues to be a punitive spirit. Coming into the world, Jesus says of the Holy Spirit in John chapter 16 and verse 8, that the Spirit would come to convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. That's what the Spirit is doing in the world today. That is the role of the Spirit even throughout eternity. It is the condemnation. It is the convicting of sinners concerning sin, judgment, and righteousness. The testimony of the Spirit that does this. Imagine the the courtroom of eternity, and there is God the Father, the great judge, sitting on his righteous throne, throwing down the edicts of his righteous and holy law against guilty sinners. And imagine there on one side, there is Christ, the advocate for all of his people, for those who are in him, for those who have confessed in him, for those who have trusted in his blood, for those who have been persuaded of his beauty and of his power, of his might. They don't have to say a word. Christ stands there as their advocate. And imagine however on the other side of the courtroom, those who have refused to come to Christ, those who have refused the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, those who have trampled under feet the grace of God that came into the world by Jesus Christ. There, they are shut because the Holy Spirit stands convicting them of their sin of unrighteousness and judgment. There is the courtroom. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And all according to the righteousness of God. He's a persuasive spirit indeed. He's a pugilistic spirit. But he's also a punitive spirit. We see this here in Jephthah, and we ought to also see it in our own lives, even in the world. God, the Spirit, is a convicting and corroborating witness 
against the sins of the world. The Spirit of the Lord was upon Jephthah for the glory of God, for the victory of God's people. But the main point of this text here is not so much the Spirit of God as it is the foolishness of a father. And Jephthah demonstrates something that is very important that we should not miss, and he demonstrates that the presence of God is no guarantee against human folly. Paul says in in Ephesians chapter 4, it is possible to grieve the Spirit of God. So we see here a man, a man, the Bible says, that was had the Spirit of God upon him, and yet even though he had the Spirit of God upon him, he engages, he speaks foolishly. Reminds us, should it not, that even the best of Christians can be the worst at times. That just because we have the Spirit of God in us does not mean that we are always yielding to the Spirit and therefore we often find ourselves saying things that we shouldn't say, doing things that we shouldn't do, going places that we shouldn't go. And so here it is, Jephthah, the man of God. The Spirit of God is upon him, but it doesn't keep him. I'm speaking foolishly. Here, herein lies, I believe, one of the most perplexing accounts in all of the book of Judges. Jephthah, Jephthah here has the spirit of the Lord, and he has the cooperation of his fellow countrymen. He has all that he needs to go into battle, and he has already been guaranteed victory by God who has called him. And now, now, he, for some unknown reason, senses the need to speak a vow. A rash and senseless vow. The Spirit of the Lord was upon him in verse 29. And then in verse 30, we read these words. Jephthah says to God, if you will give the Ammonites into my hand, then whatever comes out from the doors of my house to meet me when I return in peace from the Ammonites shall be the Lord's. And I will offer it up for a burnt offering. Whatever comes out of my house, whatever comes out of my house after I return from victory over the Ammonites, whatever comes out of my house, I shall offer it up as a burnt offering unto you. The question that has perplexed me all this week and still perplexes me even now is what or who did Jephthah believe was coming out of his house? (laughs) Who did he believe was going to come out of his house? His wife? (laughs) Perhaps a servant. Perhaps a dog. 
perhaps he really believed in his mind that after coming back from, from victory, this perfect, spotless ewe lamb was going to walk out of that house. I don't know what Jephthah thought, but surely he must have known that the odds were not in his favor. You know, I've searched long and hard to come up with a word that describes what Jephthah did. I've searched all week long, trying the last two weeks, in fact, to come up with something unnecessary, unnecessary about. A, a needless vow, foolish vow, a, 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 a rash vow, a tragic vow, an asinine vow. But the word that just kept coming back to me again and again and again and again is a word that in our home we try not to use. Every now and then it slips out, but we try not to use it. It's a word that we try to get our children. Let's not use that word. Let's not, let's not refer to anybody or anything in those terms. It is a word that is not very comely. It is a word that I would not expect to come to your house and hear you use. But I just kept searching for something to describe what Jephthah did. And the only thing I could come up with, beloved, is that this is just stupid. Pardon me. Forrest Gump reminded us that stupid is as stupid does. And what Jephthah does here, beloved, is just stupid. I mean, the Bible says in Job chapter 11, verse 12, that a stupid man will get understanding when a wild donkey gives birth to a man. Isaiah 19, 11 reminds us that stupid was the counsel that Pharaoh's wisest men gave to him. And I say this with all disrespect for Jephthah this morning because I believe if Jephthah is anything like me, if Jephthah was here this morning and we asked Jephthah, what do you think of the vow that you made? I am quite confident that Jephthah would say, that was stupid. That's why the Bible reminds us, even those of us who have the Spirit of God, that we need to set a guard, O Lord, over our mouth and keep watch over the doors of our lips. That's why the Bible reminds us in James chapter 1 and verse 19 that we should be quick to hear, but slow to speak. Jephthah makes a stupid vow, but not only is it a stupid vow, but beloved also, it is a faithless vow. It is a faithless vow. It is not an act of faith, but rather it is faithlessness. This is not an act of faith that Jephthah engages in. This is faithlessness. God is going to give his people the victory. Jephthah does not need to enter into this, 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 this game with God. For God is not interested in playing games. 
God is not money hall, and this is not let's make a deal. And this is what Jephthah does. He seeks to make this deal with God. God, if you would just grant me this victory, this is what I will do for you. It is faithless. It is, it is foolish. In other words, it is really an attempt to manipulate God. And God is not in the quid pro quo. God is not into your attempts at manipulation. It should remind us that we need to be careful of our promises. We make them. We've made them. As some of you have made them this week. Look at Jephthah. I'm reminded of some of the foolish promises that I've made to God. Foolishness. How many promises have you made? Foolish promises. Foolish vows. Lord, you just get me out of this situation. Lord, if you just let me win the lotto, I'll give half of the money to church and missions. That's a lie. Lord, 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 if I'm, just, Lord, if I'm not pregnant, I, just, I won't do it again. Lord, if I can just get home this one time and they don't pull me over, I promise, I promise, I promise I'm not going to drink and drive anymore. All these foolish, rash, faithless vows. Not only is it a faithless vow, not only is it a stupid vow, but ultimately it's a tragic vow. For what came out of Jephthah's house caused him to grieve. I don't know what he was expecting, beloved. But I am quite sure he was not expecting his only child. And Jephthah's vow not only cost him, but his daughter would have to pay. And yet, no matter how faithless, no matter how foolish, no matter how tragic, here we see even in this scenario the glory and the grace and the mercy of God. For it moves from the Spirit of God to the foolishness of a father to the grace of a child. Do you notice something? The spirit of the Lord may have been upon Jephthah for victory, but in the daughter, in her response, we see the grace of God. We see even the fruit of the spirit. Not only was Jephthah not expecting his daughter to come out of the house, but he was probably not expecting her response either. When he, when he tells her of what he must do, and he tells her of her fate, notice what she says in verse 36. My father, you have opened your mouth to the Lord. Do to me according to what has gone out of your mouth. Now that the Lord has avenged 
you on your enemies, on the Ammonites. Even in the midst of the darkness of the judges in general and in, of Jephthah in particular, here is the shining light of grace and goodness. You know, I really believe, beloved, it's hard-pressed to find such grace. We are hard-pressed to find such grace. Who among us would not have kicked and screamed against the foolishness of a parent? Who, who, who among us would not have found the words to not only describe the vow, but also to describe the one who made it? And yet, here is this young girl. You know, I love my parents as most of you do. But I am quite sure that this would put a strain on the best of relationships. And here is this child. And rather than grow and bitter toward her father, rather than resent him for the foolishness of his sin, she responds with uncommon grace. She tells her father, let this thing be done to me. Here is a woman. Here is a young lady who is full of the Spirit. Full of the Spirit. We, we could say, we could say, really, we could say when we look at Jephthah at the beginning of this section, we could say that Jephthah received the Spirit in accordance with the gifts of the Spirit. Jephthah had received a gift of the Spirit. But then when we look at Jephthah's daughter, we don't see the gift of the Spirit as much as we see the fruit of the Spirit. This is not to be missed by us because this is precious and beautiful fruit. It is not the gifts of the Spirit that God looks for in our lives, beloved. It's the fruit of the Spirit. It is not the gifts of the Spirit that give evidence of being in Christ. It's the fruit of the Spirit. And here is this young child comes forth from her father's house with joy and and dancing and, and tamarines and rejoicing. And after hearing of her father's foolish and tragic vow, her rejoicing is turned into mourning. Her dancing is turned into a dirge. Her laughter is turned to lament. But rather than grow bitter in the midst of her tragic circumstances, rather than grow resentful at the pain and the, and the immediate cause of her suffering, the psalm says in 8, the psalmist says in 8, Verse 2, from the lips of children and infants, you have ordained praise because of your enemies to silence the foe and the avenger. 
from the lips of this little girl comes the redemption of her father and the praise of her God. How unworthy is Jephthah of such love and devotion? How unworthy are we all? For her grace to Jephthah is redemptive grace, grace unmerited, grace unearned. This grace is redemptive. She redeems his foolishness. She redeems his sin. And notice she does it without saying a mumbling word. She never says a disgruntled word. Does this not this morning point us to the Christ? Does she not remind us of the one that Isaiah says, like a lamb led to slaughter, silent before his shearers, he did not open his mouth. Does he not, like Jephthah's daughter, redeem our foolishness? Does he not, like Jephthah's daughter, redeem our lives? Not because we make vows, but because he has. You look at Jephthah, you should be reminded of this all-important truth. It is not God who needs our vows. It is we who need his. God is not interested in us making him promises. All God wants is for us to trust in his promises. Jephthah vowed, and he gave his only child. How foolish that was. But our God has vowed, and he too has given his only child. And how faithful, how glorious, how wonderful, and how thankful we are. So we need to be reminded this morning, I don't need your promises. I got the promises of God. When men and women break their promises, and they will. When husbands and fathers and, 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 and wives and mothers break their promises, and they will. When sons and daughters break their promises, and they will. When pastors and politicians break their promises, and they will. It is then that you turn from those promises and you lean upon the promises of God. Trust in his promises. Trust in his vows. Trust in what he has promised. Trust that he will bring his promises to pass. Trust in him. Because he has vowed. He has vowed. 
In Genesis chapter 3 and, and 15, he vowed. He vowed that the seed of the woman would come and crush the head of the seed of the serpent. He vowed. He vowed in Genesis chapter 12 that Abraham, that Abraham, your seed would come and your, through your seed, Abraham, all the nations of the world would be blessed. He vowed. He vowed in Isaiah chapter 7 that that one, that seed of the woman, that seed of Abraham would be born of a virgin and they would call his name Emmanuel. That's his vow. He vowed in Isaiah chapter 9 that he would establish this seed's kingdom, even the throne of David forever and ever and ever. He vowed. He vowed in Isaiah chapter 53 that, that he would be bruised for our transgressions, that, he, that, that upon him would be our iniquities, and that by his stripes we would be healed. He vowed. Not only that. He vowed in John in chapter 2 that if you destroy this body and this temple in three days, he would raise it again. That's his vow. He vowed in John chapter 14 that you need not let your heart be troubled, neither need you to be afraid, that he goes to prepare a place for you and where he is, he would receive you unto himself again. That is his vow. That's why we don't trust in the promises of human beings. We trust in the promises of God because he vowed we live. Oh, beloved, this is a wonderful reminder to us this morning even as we come to the Lord's table, that these elements here are a reminder to us that Christ has vowed. He has vowed not only to save all those who have trusted in him, but he has vowed that he is coming again. He has vowed. And every time you take into your hand these elements, every time you look into the cup, every time you take and eat of that bread, it should remind you that our God has promised that just as he went, so shall he come again and receive us unto himself. You look into that cup. You hold that bread. There's a promise that heaven is your eternal home. That you have been redeemed from hell and eternal damnation. Why? Because he vowed. Because he promised. And all he asks, he doesn't ask you to make him any promises. He doesn't ask you to stand up and make any vows. All he asks is that you would trust 
and the promises that he has made. If you are here this morning, oh, I pray that everyone here has trusted in Christ. God don't want your promises. God don't want your vows. All he asks is that you believe. Have you believed this morning? Have you trusted Christ this morning? You can do it right now. If you have not, you can do it right now. You can bow your head and say, Lord, I believe. Forgive me of my sins. I believe in the promise of the coming Christ. I believe in the promise that he's coming again. I believe in the promise that his blood is able to cleanse me from all my sins. I believe in the promise that your spirit would come and begin to make me new, I believe. Oh, I pray that everyone here would believe and trust right now. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, oh, Pray, God, if there's anyone here under the sound of my voice who doesn't know you in the pardon of their sins, that they would believe now, that your spirit would come and move upon their hearts and open their eyes, that they would be persuaded, Lord, not because of the words that I have spoken, but more importantly, because of your spirit. They have seen and they have heard redemption and salvation in Christ Jesus. And they would believe and trust in him. Thank you for your spirit this morning, Heavenly Father. Thank you for your word, for its convicting power and the comfort that is ours in Christ Jesus, I pray that everyone here would know Jesus and worship him according to your spirit, by your power, by your might. This is my prayer. In Jesus' name, amen.